We know who that belonged to. We know whose kid that was right there. <laughs> Bunch of hams. They're funny. I love that. And uh, just, again, appreciation to our uh, young adults for their part up here, for the kids. You know, it's, uh, it takes a lot of courage to stand up and to, and to lead. And we are very, very blessed uh, to have this, uh, you know, have all the talent we have throughout the ministries of the church, but to have these young adults coming along and, and being so faithful to, to their rehearsals and practice and then to be up here and to lead us in worship this morning. What a blessing. What a blessing. Uh, we uh, turn this morning in our scripture to uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 22 through uh, 27, as we're going to talk about prayer this morning and the way that God works um, in and through prayer on behalf of those who have trusted in his presence and in his grace. So we begin here, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Brothers and sisters, and this is the word of God. We pray his blessing on the reading here of his holy scriptures. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, help us to, to hear, to be open to your Holy Spirit, to allow your voice to speak to us and to grow in our faith our obedience, and our trust in you. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The instructions that are given are these. Deliver to the oldest Patrick McGrath first. Deliver to the oldest Patrick McGrath first. And those are the instructions that are given to mail carriers in Abbeyfield, Ireland. Because, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the um, postal system of rural Ireland, but they do not have zip codes or postal codes, as we know. They don't identify addresses by individual house numbers. Basically, the mail is delivered to a large geographic area. And it is then up for the mail carriers to figure out who it's supposed to go to. So in Abbeyfield, Ireland, the instructions are very simple. Deliver to the oldest Patrick McGrath or the oldest person first if there are duplicate names. See, what happened was a few years ago, there was an article about a, a man who was age 40 years old named Patrick McGrath. And he moved to Abbeyfield. The problem was he's the third Patrick McGrath in Abbeyfield. So he said that when mail would come... His mail, when letters would come, they would go to the oldest Patrick McGrath first. 
who would then read the mail and determine that letter was not intended for him. And then it would get passed to the next, who would read the mail. And if it wasn't for him, it would get passed to the third Patrick McGrath of the area. Now, how confident would you be in writing anything to somebody if you had no assurance that it was actually going to get to the person you intended to receive it? Or if you thought before it got to that person, it would be read by two, three, four, however many other people. That kind of violates um, a basic desire we have in our correspondence. And that is whether it's a snail mail, whether it's an email, uh, whether it's private messages or texts, we want to believe that our message is received by the intended audience. And things fall through or become a little more strained or difficult when, when that system doesn't work according to plan. A few years ago, I started getting emails from my mother. I started getting emails periodically that would be family updates, and they would be jokes, or they would be recipes or things, and they were all addressed to, to me from mom which sounds ordinary and everyday, unless you remember, those of you that have been here for a number of years, that my mom went home to be with Jesus over 20 years ago. But don't tell that to Rita Schmidt. Because somehow along the line, Rita Schmidt became convinced that the address I have for my, one of my email accounts belonged to her son. And so I started getting family emails. I still get family emails. Now, if you think that's disingenuous or dishonest on my part, please know I have emailed Rita, dear mother, and I've explained to mom, I don't know who you are, but it hasn't changed anything. I'm still on the mailing list. So, uh, so sometimes communication doesn't quite work. Now, now, to be fair, I don't get personal emails anymore. I just get like the big group emails. So I'm thinking maybe she just felt I needed to be part of the family. I don't know. But, um, but it, was, it, it reminds us that, you know, how many of you have, maybe it should be, how many have not sent an email or, or a text at some point in your life and had that moment of panic? Did I just send that to the right person? You know, there are stories after stories you can go read of his, hysterical things because they're always funny when they don't happen to you. And there's commercials and things that, that, that detail, you know, what happens when we inadvertently send uh, the wrong email to the wrong recipient. We need confidence that our communication is arriving at its intended destination. Romans 8 speaks into a promise, a power, if you will, that is at work in the lives of those who come to faith in Christ, that we can have confidence that the barriers of communication have been broken down. The, the barriers, that's really what, what Romans 8, as I, as I wrestled with the text, as I studied the text, I began to, 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 to understand that that we have a hard time communicating when there's uncertainty. And what Romans 8 speaks to is the certainty that we can have in our communication with God, in our relationship with God, in our prayer, which is, is, is the way that we have an audience with our Heavenly Father. And so, 
Romans 8 speaks to the power of God that has broken down barriers. And it's helpful when we frame it in context of some of the other stories of the New Testament, other, some of the gospel and, and early stories of Acts. We remember that, or maybe you don't, in Matthew 27, verse 51, that at the end of Jesus' life, at the moment that he breathed his last on the cross, verse 50 of Matthew 27 says, with that, Jesus breathed his last. And this is the very next thing that happens. Maybe you know this. But in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, now, now let's, let's back up and let's talk about the Holy of Holies for a moment. The Holy of Holies was the place where God dwelt. The, the, the Jewish people, the, the, the faith in which Jesus lived and was raised and, and born into, they believed that God's dwelling place was the temple. That's why the temple was so important, was so primary to their faith. And there in the Holy of Holies was the place where God dwelt. But the only person that could ever enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year. He could enter into the Holy of Holies to make an atonement for the sins of the people. He would go as our representative to, to make the sacrifice, the atonement for the sins that have divided us from God. And the understanding was that our sins have kept us at a distance from God. And so this, this priest would go in and he would be our representative. And this huge curtain hung over the Holy of Holies and it divided that sacred space from the people. In fact, the, the legend is, now we, we don't have any biblical or even a whole lot of historical evidence that this was the case, but the legend and the story you may have heard, and I've heard, is that when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that they would tie a rope around his waist or around his ankle so that if the priest died in the Holy of Holies, had a heart attack or something tragic happened, they could pull him out without ever entering that sacred space because it was deemed um, to, to be what was unthinkable. It was sacrilege to enter that space. So that's how significant this place was. Now, let's go back to Matthew 27, verse 51. It says that at the moment Jesus breathed his last, that the temple curtain was split in two. Jesus removes the barrier. What God wants us to understand is in that moment in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that that barrier, that need to have another human being intercede on your behalf, that separation from God is removed. And we are given through faith direct access to our Heavenly Father. No longer did you have to rely on the high priest to speak on your behalf. You are given an invitation into the throne room of God, the temple curtain is split in two. The barrier to communication is removed. Now, jump forward a little bit. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. I don't know how many of you have been watching um, the series AD. Any of you been watching that on NBC? Okay, a few of you. Last week, um, if you've been watching the series, what, it, what the series is, it's the ongoing um, that was, I think it's a continuation of the Bible series that was done um, a, a year or so ago, and it dealt with, and it has dramatized uh, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the implication, the, the life of the disciples in the aftermath. And so last week, we saw a, a, a dramatic uh, depiction of, of the day of Pentecost, and, and they do it, as they understand from a movie, that it's a little theatrical, and the disciples are there in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes, it almost looks like a meteor, that, that descends upon them. 
that finds them and they're filled with the Spirit. And remember, though, that on that day, the Holy Spirit found them. That's important to remember. They were holed up in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they go out into the streets of Jerusalem where their lives had been in jeopardy, where their lives were in, in, where they were threatened. They go out and they begin to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. But Acts 2 tells us that there were people from across the Mediterranean world there, from numerous different languages. They were in town for the, for the holy feast of, of um, first Passover and then Pentecost. And that each of these individuals understood the disciples in their own language. It's the first miracle of, of speaking in tongues, but, but it's not the kind of tongues we normally think about. We think of the Pentecostal expression of worship in which somebody is speaking in an unintelligible language and somebody can interpret that. This is a different kind of tongues. This is the kind of tongues as if we were a multi-nation congregation. We all came together and spoke different languages, but yet you all heard me in your own language. That's what happens on the day of Pentecost. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, you know what that is? One of the many things that that reminds us of is that what God is doing, again, as he did when he split the, the temple curtain, the Holy of Holies, is he's removing barriers. He's reminding us those things that would keep us at a distance from God, not being able to understand, not having a access to God's presence has been removed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. He says we're kind of in this, this place and we, we have not received the full adoption. We've not stepped into the full glory of what is to come at our resurrection. We're in this place where there's still these groaning pains where, if I can paraphrase, life is still hard and it's still difficult. But into this, we have access with God because the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf, is at work in our lives. So this barrier of separation, this barrier of distance gets removed and we are brought into a relationship with God. We can, if you want to go back to the illustration of, of Ireland, we can be confident in our prayers that our words and our hearts and our thoughts are reaching the intended destination, that God hears and is responsive to us. So distance, uncertainty, does God hear? Is God present? Paul wants to say that that barrier is removed. Trust in that. But the other barrier that we often experience that I hear probably more so than any other is when I talk to people about prayer is this. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. I hear that more than anything else. People say, I, I want to pray. I just I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. And part of the, the understandable misunderstanding there is that for us, prayer becomes about language. It becomes about what we speak and what we hope God hears. And that is a part of prayer, but that's a very limited understanding of prayer. But we come, but we think, because we think that prayer has to be poetic, it has to be flowery, it has to, be, it has to have a flow to it, be, because so many of us are shaped in our understanding of prayer by these moments of worship, and by those of us who, who stand up here, and we do this regularly. And so our prayers have a, a system, though I don't necessarily consider myself all that great a prayer. 
I will tell you, I get more nervous about the prayer than I do about the sermon sometimes because I buy into that too. I want the prayer to be wonderful. I want you all to be impressed at how poetic I can be because prayer certainly must be effective by the depth of the words that I choose and the flow of the, of the words as they roll off my tongue. But see, that's, that's not what prayer is. What, what Paul says is none of us know how to pray. We're ushered into the presence of God. We're ushered into the presence of the Most High. Of course we don't know how to communicate in that place. And that's okay. Because Paul says that when we start with prayer, is a recognition that we don't. We don't know how to pray. Now, why is that a good recognition? Because it forces us to remember we're dependent, not upon our ability, but God's presence. The Holy Spirit that intercedes for us. And so prayer, here, here's what I believe. Prayer is not about knowing how to. Prayer is about knowing that you want to. It is about knowing that you have a desire to come into the presence of God, to experience God's presence, and remembering it is not about our words to God's ears, but it's about God's heart to our heart. It's about God's ability to communicate. In fact, it says here at the very end, the last verses I read, it says that he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Now, right before that, it had said that the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. Okay, that's a way of saying, don't sweat the words. Now, again, that's not saying the words don't matter. It's saying don't be so caught up in that because the the Spirit intercedes beyond our words, more powerful than the words. It's a heart language. It says then, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. And this is what we have to understand about that second barrier, is is that we misunderstand prayer. Because we think prayer too often is about outcomes. We think prayer is about changing outcomes. And we limit prayer. Two years ago at the Super Bowl, one of the, the atheist groups out there put banners up, as they've started to do, to try to counter out uh, the messages of faith. And, and the banner basically said, or the signs they hung there in, I think it was when it was in New York, said, um, Hail Mary's only work in football. Hail Mary's only work in football. And the message they were trying to communicate is, your prayers are fruitless. It is, it is ridiculous to pray, and they were using the football game as an example because people were going to be praying for their team to win. And no matter what happened, half the people were going to be wrong. And so their idea was saying, your prayer is ineffective. Your prayer doesn't work. And the problem is, the short-sightedness of that message is the short-sightedness that we fall into too often, and that is that we think prayer is about outcomes. It's about telling God what we want and then hoping that we can bend God's will to our will. And, and if you doubt that sometimes, think about our own language betrays us. Mine does. But I, I start paying attention. How often do we celebrate answered prayers in a very limited way? This is what I mean. I started, I started kind of taking inventory and, and looking and seeing where people were celebrating answered prayers. And I would see, we thank God for answered prayers because somebody who was sick has gotten well. We thank God for answered prayers because we were in financial straits, but, but blessings have come to us. I thank God for answered prayers because it was in a, a relationship that was broken and it's been restored. And that becomes 
the extent of what we understand as answered prayers. Now, let me pause for a moment and stop because I'm, I'm, I'm treading into very, very dangerous territory. Hear this very, very clearly. Those are answered prayers. That's okay. Please, please, please do not walk out of here thinking that we should not celebrate, we should not be grateful, we should not express gratitude to God when prayers are answered in the way that we hope them to be, that we ask them to be. That is wonderful. That's a gift worthy of celebration. The problem is not that that's what we understand prayer to be. The problem is too often that's all we understand prayer to be. We have missed the bigger picture of prayer. We have missed what Paul says here in that the Spirit intercedes for us in accordance to the will of God. Do you hear that? Not according to the will of the people. Not prayer becomes the vehicle by which we can kind of bend God to what we want, but prayer becomes the vehicle in which God bends us to what He wants. That our behavior, our lives, our outlook becomes formed into the will of God, into His desires for us. We can look no further than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified. Remember that he had a twofold prayer there. Luke 22 tells us that first Jesus prayed, if there's any way for this cup to pass over me. What he's praying for is, Lord, please, let's, not this way. I don't want to be crucified. I do not want to go through what I know awaits me. That's what his prayer is. And if we understand prayer to be about, the effectiveness of prayer to be about God responding to what we ask for, then we would deem that a failed prayer because Jesus would walk that path. Jesus did experience that reality. But when prayer for us goes deeper, we recognize the power of the next thing that Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Prayer begins to bend us into the, to the will of God. Not that God desired for Jesus to be crucified, but it was God's plan. He knew the hearts of men, and he knew that the redemption would lie through the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. So the prayer becomes of Jesus. This is what I want. But if that's not your plan, God, help me to be faithful to what you've called me to. Help me to bend my will to your will. That's exactly what Paul says. It intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God. So prayer doesn't become about our words to God's ears. It becomes about God's heart to our heart. It begins to not change his plan, but to change our lives, to open us up to the presence of God and His strength and His power that is at work in our lives to speak His peace, to speak His hope, to find reasons to be gratitude and thankful or for gratitude and thankfulness in all circumstances. To be able to say, the financial windfall hasn't come, but I found how to be content with what God has given. To say that the darkness that I've walked and the difficulty are still there, but I've been able to find God's presence in the midst of it. I've been able to see God's blessings and to celebrate what God has done. I will never forget the, the, the funeral when, when my mom passed away. And I can, in the grief and the sorrow of, of certainly that experience and that, those moments, I remember getting into the limousine to go to the graveside. And I remember I was facing backwards and I could see the cars lined up to go 
to, to be a part of that moment, to, to be there at the cemetery, those who had come to celebrate her life. And this is what I realized. Man, it sucked. Okay? It just did. It was awful. And my heart was breaking. But even there, I had a moment to see what God had done. That this woman who had, should have had more years had blessed so many. And even there, I could see God's hand at work. Now, it didn't make it easy. It didn't mean that the, the grief and sometimes the anger dissipated. But allowed me to begin to line up with God's work in the midst of a situation that we had prayed would never come. So was prayer answered? Heck yeah, it was. Heck yeah, it was. Because God's removed the barriers. We are given audience through His Holy Spirit. And God works to begin to line us according, up according to His will and purpose. Not mouth to ear, but heart to heart. That's what God does in prayer. I pray that you have experienced the heart of God, the Spirit of God, and find your blessings in the presence of God. That's what His Word promises. That's what Paul wants us to hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence. The barriers that have been removed so that we can hear from you. We can know you intimately. That our words reach your ears, but more importantly, that your heart shapes ours. And that we are ushered into your holy presence. Strengthen us in that. Unite us in faith and move us in obedience. We pray in Christ. Amen.